very nice bunch of boys. Yes. Really very nice. It used to give me a lot of pleasure when they all trooped home here and um, we just had baked beans on toast. Good evening. Welcome to this first edition of Midnight Video with me, your host, Phil Walsh. And me, Jim Hall. Tonight, we head back to a time when Peter Jackson's big screen take on Lord of the Rings was but a mere twinkle in Sauron's single blazing eyeball, and the warped Kiwi director instead served up zero-budget gore and chuckles with cult favourite Bad Taste. Military madness, moonwalking and metaphysics, the film exorcist creator William Peter Blatty claims is the true sequel to his pea-suit-vomiting, head-spinning, mother-insulting horror juggernaut. We join Stacey Keach in unravelling the ninth configuration. And James Bond versus Norman Bates. Roger Moore's on his most eyebrow-raising form as Rufus Excalibur folks. The bizarre aquatic action man who must lead a crack squad of paunchy frogmen to stop Anthony Perkins' plans for a North Sea hijack. Okay, our debut podcast. Thank you very much for downloading. Woo! And uh, <laughs> we're here at last, yes. And recording was well, April the 2nd. We've just about got out of April Fool's Day. Um, I pity the fool. You pity the fool who listens to this. Sorry, I'm um, not going to keep doing stuff like that. <laughs> oh, God, we're so unprofessional already. Um, but yeah, um, probably worth us mentioning what we're actually doing at this point. We're a film review podcast, but probably. Um, we're going to try and steer clear of things which are getting too much attention elsewhere. We're going to be in the contrary gets we are. We're probably going to try and find slightly more obscure things. We, we are deliberately going to try and find some more obscure stuff. Because, um, yeah, it's quite nice poking around at the back of the fridge and uh, seeing what's there. <laughs> Send my dad to mum. <laughs> so um, but, yeah, some of the... Uh, yeah, I'm... Some of the inspiration for this is uh, something you've been involved with recently, Phil. The 70 Movie Challenge? Yeah, that just started earlier this year, actually, by um, Dan. Oh, well, Dan. Everyone knows Dan. Yeah. <laughs> Mondo Dan from Duh. the <laughs> Mondo you know. Dan from the Mondo Movie Podcast and Forum, which I'm sure, if you listen to this, some of you will be more than aware of him and his presence. You probably know of us through the Mondo Movie Forum. Most probably. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, the challenge was to watch 70 films starting from the year 1940 up to 2009. Um, and it's a film for each year using only one director from each year and a maximum of five countries and you can't re-watch a film from that year once you've watched it one film only one film only so um, uh, you must have been around the world yeah I've been in, up, down, in, out check it all about whilst lying on your sofa <laughs> yeah, basically. for several months <laughs> well I, I did it pretty quickly I've been stuck on the last I'm on, I'm on 69 as I always okay, am okay I'm days not going to say anything <laughs> yes. um, but yeah it's been a fantastic journey you know I've watched tons of films that I'd never have expected to or been inclined to you know it's that idea of having a challenge is uh put in front of you, you you go out of your way to make more of an effort because I mean, something that I was interested in when you mentioned this was because you have to go through so many countries wasn't one of the problems that films before 1960 don't tend to be subtitled that much? Uh, not as much yeah it's kind of difficult I mean I, th I think if you go further back say to the beginning of cinema it's easier because you've got silent movies but yeah. then there's this whole period in between where yeah watching foreign films subtitled foreign films is, is pretty hard to track them down um, but yeah, no, it's a challenge. 
there's one one you mentioned which I'm really intrigued by the White Reindeer, a Were Reindeer film. A Were Reindeer film, yeah. Um, great film. Premise: It's a Finnish movie um, based on Finnish folklore. A woman who is married to a reindeer herder. He's away from home quite a lot. You can imagine the trailer for this. <laughs> <laughs> she was married to a reindeer herder. <laughs> Kate Winslet and Leonardo DiCaprio. Should we really making this film? <laughs> no, I, I can imagine like Russell Crowe. I think in the, uh, <laughs> the Russ Abbott <laughs> <laughs> in the reindeer. Why do we always digress in such a way? And why do I leave my phone in my pocket? Sorry, no listeners. Professional gonna, sod. You, you carry on while I. <laughs> yeah. So, so we've got uh, the white reindeer is basically. A woman whose husband is away a lot. She wants to entice him into her bed when he's at home and he's been tired on long days out. So she goes to see a shaman who gives her a potion which is going to reinvigorate her love life. And unfortunately, the side effect is that she turns into a white reindeer with vampiric tendencies. It's just an intriguing little early 1950s Finnish film that. I would never have thought I'd have seen or even heard of. It's bizarre. It's great. Which film have you got left, actually? So you're on 69. I've got um, Potop, The Deluge. It's a Polish epic from uh, 1973, I think. It's five hours long. That's the only problem. Yeah, let's get off that because people are turning off in yeah. clothes now. This is going to be about horror movies and stuff. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, this gives you some idea. Well, Expect a lot of sleaze and trash and exploitation, black exploitation, highbrow, pretentious art house movies, oddball documentaries. Yeah. We've given about a lot of thought, and uh, I think we've probably found the movie that sh- we really think kicks things off well. Maybe a tad commercial for you, uh, Gore fans out there, but you know, this is where it's at. Aren't you interested in this jack we caught then? Of course we are, Derek. Right. Stay where you are then, and I'll give you an eyewitness description of this. Intergalactic wanker. Released in 1987, Bad Taste was the debut full-length feature from Peter Jackson. It's a demented science fiction horror comedy made as an ambitious home movie over four years, before a cash injection from the New Zealand Film Commission bolstered it to big screen status and a hugely successful debut at Cannes. The plot has a deeply unprofessional and trigger-happy team of government operatives, the unfortunately initialed Astro Investigation Defence Service, take on invading aliens in human disguise. Hiding out in the fictitious New Zealand township of Kaihoro, the monsters plan to harvest and market as puny earthlings as a popular brand of cosmic fast food. Looking at the credits, Jackson seemed to be involved in practically every aspect of the movie, including its many notorious over-the-top splatter-filled special effects. He also had a dual role, starring as both dweeby earth defender Derek and as a bearded zombie-like invader, Robert. So I was about... 10 years old when I first saw the case of this (laughs) I didn't get to see it for a few more years but I was in the video shop and pleading with my parents I want to see this film, it's got this big weird guy sticking his finger up with a machine gun (laughs) it looks ace and it's called Bad Taste oh it wasn't 48 hours Does it have a machine gun on that? It has Eddie Murphy. This is going off on a tangent already. The cover of that is Nick Nolte and Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy's given the finger, but I remember when they showed it on ITV, they kind of blanked his finger out, so it just looked like he was hailing a taxi or something. <laughs> and then, yeah, it took a few years for me to actually get round to watch it with my mate, who uh, managed to get hold of a copy, and uh, I was just blown away. Um, obviously, it's 
it's like losing your virginity watching a film like this for the first time. It's it's a it's a. I'll have to take your word for it. It's that. a unique experience. Okay. Whether it's dirty, well, that, it's grimy. I was going to say, is it massively disappointing? And... No, right. yeah, it was superb. It's everything I ever dreamed of. Well, look, it's interesting you say it because you said you were ten when you saw the case, but you saw it a few years later. So you're about thirteen, which this isn't a backhanded insult. That's probably the perfect age to watch this film. Oh, definitely. Because I'm. I'm pretty sure most people listening to this will have seen it, but just um, we describe the plot a little bit. But the whole air of it is so joyously um, over the top, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's a horror, it, uh, horror sci-fi comedy, but yeah, outrageous gore in it, um, and such a sense of fun. Yeah, in- incredibly creative from a technical aspect, but like I don't want to get into that just yet. The fact that it's so lo-fi and um, it's just full of passion and heart isn't it that's it because it is filmed on um, I haven't got the technical <laughs> details a very low kind of grade of film stock isn't it it looks very washed out colour hmm. the whole thing's post-synced sound wise afterwards in fact after one of the lead actors had died which adds a kind of certain Poor Lloyd Crumb, yeah. yes um, but so inventive and energetic um, I've already said this but very over the top gore I'm so impressed with that because it seems when I first watched this and I was I was at college. I think it was on. I think it may have been on very late night uh, on Channel Four. But at that point, I probably thought it was a bit puerile. Watching it now, I was impressed by how on the money it was. Um, we're used to that idea of first-time film directors deliberately going for the horror market because there's a built-in audience for those kind of films. Mm. Jackson clearly, from this, genuinely loves horror and fantasy films. He's not doing this in a cynical way at all, but. Yeah, there's no, there's no cynicism at all. I mean, it, it it comes across in the same way that like Sam Raimi's approach to the Evil Dead movies. There's a playfulness about it, um, but it's underlined by that the joy that you can do so much with a horror film. You know, you can go crazy with the effects. You can be as creative as you want, but also stories can be relatively simple. And yeah, because this, this basically has a setup, doesn't it? I yeah. Mean, as we probably said, it was filmed over a four-year period, and then once it was almost complete, um, it got extra funding to really expand it. From the outset, the first kind of gore effect that's used in it, and I don't want to sound too much like you know a gore hound, but the fact I think the first gore effect is one of the zombie-like invaders getting the top half of his head blown off. Superbly executed, I think. He was superbly executed, <laughs> which then you know is later on used as this kind of boiled egg kind of. Yeah, with um, Jackson's character Robert, Robert um, yeah. eating eating the poor chap's brains with a sil- little silver spoon. <laughs> uh, another scene very early on when uh, both of Jackson's characters, uh, Derek and Robert, in a clifftop fight, which again, this is something wonderful about it. There's uh, a first-time film director would probably think, you know, I'll try and just get this in the can, but that's such fearlessness, which I think is the only link between this and some of his later films, like you know, Lord of the Rings, obviously. Well, his approach Undo- to... Undaunted yeah. by... Uh, there's a, there's a, it's hard because there seems to be this... He's got this approach, which is a strange balance between absolute confidence but complete naivety as well. Um, it's, it's first filmmaking syndrome, you mm. know, um, but with a with a lot of um, lady luck in the way, maybe you know, because it, it managed to find um, an audience and it, it got promotion through Cannes and what have you. But you know, they, they really put him on the map, I suppose. It did, but it is a brilliantly made film. Um, 
just this I keep saying over the top black comedy but that's exactly what makes it work um, I can't believe it was made pretty much spontaneously wasn't it? spontaneously over four years but I don't think there was a script really developed it was just seems like these things were built up over time but yeah because yeah, so it's got a very there was no script no. at all yeah we got that very basic setup of just a bunch of reprobates uh, representing New Zealand sort of black ops defending the earth in a fairly ramshackle way from these uh, equally ramshackle alien invaders yeah you've got your two you've got your Bodie and Doyle uh, ripping around in their in their car with uh, a trunk full of or a boot full of um, high tech weapons well I say high tech these are all handmade by Peter Jackson yes in the <laughs> context of wood of and aluminium yeah um, and they're just trying to overcome the alien invade well along with Derek Mm-hmm. And uh, Barry, who is like an estate agent. <laughs> God, I wouldn't buy a house off him. <laughs> It'll probably get blown to bits by. Him, uh, <laughs> I keep stressing these over-the-top effects. Something I think we both found watching this now is that some of the, even though they're done quite cheap and cheerfully, some of the effects actually were quite queasy, or made us feel queasy. I know exactly what you're thinking yeah. about. Uh, there's a terrific scene when the alien invaders have clustered together and are passing around a bowl of uh, vomit or bile, which yeah. in itself is, looks quite cheaply done. It's just brightly coloured. Robert's puked it up, hasn't he? I don't think I'm going too far to say this is kind of Hitchcockian suspense. The way they build this up, because it's getting passed around, and one of the AIDS guys who's gone undercover is desperately trying to avoid... Frank, I think it ...having is, anything yeah. to do with it, but, it, you know, it, the fate conspires that he's at the end as this has been passed around. You know it's coming up, and, uh, well, after it's already come up once, I suppose. But, oh, it was horrible to watch. Uh, brilliantly staged, like you say. You know, the way he, he can see the inevitable, and he's just sort of like sidling past them trying to get to the end of the line hoping it'll be a finish but yeah really stomach churning yeah. effective yeah like 20 years after almost mm. yeah, 25 now 25 years yeah and I mean the other the other scene that made me a bit uncomfortable I don't think this is spoiling too much of the plot because it happens very early on uh, after Derek has had this fight on the cliff top he spends the rest of the film with almost a drawbridge at the back of his head where his skull's been uh, <laughs> caved in so he spends a lot of the film trying to hold his brains in, um, using a variety. Initially, a top hat, I think, yeah. then a belt. But again, this is you know, act, um, Jackson's not really an actor, but I think he puts enough kind of detail in that. The way he stumbles around and his eyes are a little bit off kilter. That um, yeah, he's got that uh, cartoon sort of yeah figure of eight uh, in- infinity yeah. looping which I know they're always doing <laughs> The Simpsons if they suggest someone's gone off the rails one of their pupils just goes yeah. up to the top of their <laughs> top of their eyeball it does it. but again that made me feel uncomfortable in, in the way that um, you know there's the scene in David Lynch's uh, Wild at Heart when they find the girl after the car accident so yeah Sherilyn uh, Fenn Sherilyn Fenn and the fact, the fact she's so concerned about some trivial detail really makes it more heartbreaking. But we're going off message there. But yeah, just yeah, that's a good comparison. Yeah, no, it made my it made my head hurt. It is amazing how low budget this film is, and yet, as we've mentioned, the gore effects at some length they're done cheaply but did very we? effectively. <laughs> well, yeah, I think we did. Maybe you've edited them all out. But on a technical level, it is really good. Given this is a, f- I mean, Peter Jackson had done a great many short films before, which are probably quite easy to find on YouTube or there's an excellent making of documentary which is available uh, making of bad taste I think it's called uh, good, good taste, taste made bad yeah. taste um, brilliant it's a featurette from one of the DVD releases but someone's 
fortuitously put this on YouTube um, and we've watched this mm-hmm. and it's a brilliant insight and background to the movie. Jackson really learnt his craft here and I mean it, it sounds very anal of me but I was just so impressed how low budget this film looks technically and yet it had all of this coverage in it um, which a first time filmmaker usually wouldn't do. In fact some of the other films we've watched recently for this podcast mm. uh, these podcasts don't display that level of um, professionalism no, yeah, I mean, uh, he obviously knows that a film is made in the editing suite. He to get that coverage, you know, get all those angles covered, um, the camera movements, like he he covers it all. I mean, that's why the scene on the cliff is so successful. Yeah, specifically, what I'm talking about because I didn't, I knew, like I say, I'd seen this about twenty years ago. I knew Peter Jackson was in it. I didn't realize he played two roles, and you don't really. You don't get any hint of that. It's just really well edited. Is super. <laughs> it's so well edited when they're fighting each other on this cliff. And given this is probably a year or two before David Cronenberg did Dead Ringers. Oh right, yeah. Which really was this Jim breakthrough Aaron. technology with motion control cameras, so you could have one person playing two characters or more, which is used all the time now. And the humour in it is because um, the invaders' actual plan in it is uh, to turn puny earthlings into fast food. I think there's a lot of Kiwi humour in there. You know, yeah. there's obviously like references to uh, aliens taking over Auckland, and then he's like, "Oh, that wouldn't be a bad thing," kind of thing. But there's there's enough sort of uh, universal humour, um, whether it be schlocky or predictable. Yeah, it's it an just, ideal, like I say, an ideal film if you're 13 or if you're just back from the pub. Like I say, you know, the first but, time I saw it was 13. Yeah, but yeah. not to belittle it, I do genuinely think it's fantastic filmmaking. And recently, I, I enjoyed this so much, I did borrow Brain Dead off you, which I've not seen for a while. Mm. Which I do like, but I, it kind of lacks the energy of this. I think they're, quite, they're different enough to not let that, not to draw that comparison. I think this is very, sta- I think from his whole filmography, this is his standout film, which sounds weird. But because it's better even first. than Lovely Bones. Not, I don't mean better. Stand out as okay. in it's it's so different and so I don't. It's marginal compared to his other stuff. There's the, because of the What's, lack of budget. Yeah, it, it really it sticks out like a sore thumb in a good way. It's <laughs> lopped off with a machete, probably. <laughs> but I mean that is one of the reasons we chose it though, because mm. I thought I thought this was still a very well known film because I remember the publicity when it came out. But I suppose it has been superseded by Brain Dead or something now. Well, brain, brain dead. dead or something. Meet the yeah. Feebles. No, Meet the Feebles it's is still probably, a bit obscure. Yeah, um, but yeah, because a lot of people I could imagine. I mean, this doesn't appear on TV to the best of my knowledge, even on the satellite channels. Um, probably because it does look just that thing with the film stock and the post sync sound makes it something a lot of people wouldn't have the patience to sit through for even a couple of minutes. And Jackson like, obviously talked about sequels. That if he could have got the money together, or yeah. if he can still. Yeah, I think he's still open to it. I mean, I don't want to spoil the ending of this. This does have a fantastic end scene, which is fairly, uh, fairly famous. Um, but yeah, there were two direct sequels that he wanted to do back to back, which I don't think he got the funding at the time. But I think he's still happy to do them. Who knows? Uh, maybe we'll see what happens with the Hobbit. Yeah, <laughs> maybe um, he doesn't want to do. Uh, I'd rather he, films he didn't. Yeah, his his physical effects days are over. I think mm. you know he's he's no he's no Del Toro. I don't think he's as rooted in that. If this was made now, the money it would it it couldn't be self funded. No. Um, so to do it would probably there'd be an insistence on computer effects, wouldn't there, rather than undoubtedly, I think. And that's I'm not even the, all these mechanical effects. <laughs> Some of them are just no. cardboard, but they're brilliantly done. That's the charm. The charm lies there. Mm. 
I suppose you're wondering why your suited in Reggie delivered secret herbs and spaces. Tomorrow we're having you for lunch. Well, if Bad Taste put Peter Jackson on the road to making box office mega hits, the next film tonight is pretty much the reverse. When The Exorcist was a huge success in 1973, its creator, the writer William Peter Blatty, could be certain that Warner Brothers would come up with a quickie cash-in sequel, so instead he used any money coming his way to script, produce and direct his own unique follow-up, and the results were not what anybody could have expected. Because guess who's coming to take command next week? Can you guess, boys, huh? A psychiatrist! The best! The best in uniform! The greatest fucking psychiatrist since John! Kissing you're good at, you slimy snake. Bravo! So, The Ninth Configuration, released in 1980 and adapted from his 1966 novel Twinkle Twinkle Killer Kane, Peter Blatty's film is set in a gothic-like castle in the Pacific Northwest used by the US military to observe high-ranking servicemen who may or may not be mentally unbalanced. Their delusions include attempting to adapt the complete works of Shakespeare using dogs, and another who wishes to exercise a possessed Pepsi-Cola machine and walk through the walls of the castle. Into this apparent madness enters Colonel Hudson Kane, played by Stacy Keach, a military psychologist who is charged with the care of the inmates, yet Kane himself is beset by nightmares and memories that are not his own. Uh, let me just start off by saying that this is, it's no run-of-the-mill Hollywood psychodrama. Um, its structure and tonal shifts make it quite a difficult film to examine without revealing some of the plot's twists and turns. Our aim is to broadly discuss the film's ideas, hopefully without giving too much away, and then at the end of the podcast we'll briefly look into something very specific about the end of the film. Um, it'll be a kind of podcast easter egg, if you will. Is this your dog? What does it look like, my zebra? Okay, so this is a movie I'm very familiar with, so I'm, I'm very pleased we're discussing it this early on. Um, I first saw it in 1999, and I was attracted to the idea that it was it was such an unusual kind of subject matter, but also that it was such a labour of love for this guy who could have just sat back and taken in the money from uh, sequels and a franchise that he, had, he didn't have to have any direct um, involvement with. I loved it when I first saw it. Um, probably one of my favourite films over the years though I've seen it many times and I've got to say it has a bit of a diminishing returns effect for me for reasons I'll probably go into later but Phil you've only seen it what two two or three times now yeah uh, three times now um, first time I saw it was about five or six years ago and on DVD it's um, it's growing on me more and more each time I watch it I get more out of it it's a hard film to sort of um, sum up um, just to say, oh, it's a good film or it's a bad film. Mm-hmm. I think there's there's so many layers, and, and and obviously that's why we're doing it on yeah. the podcast. I mean, before we started recording this, you were talking about you just ordered a load of Shock Express, yeah, uh, compilations, which are, I think is probably the first time I heard of this. Someone was doing a feature on um, Vietnam vet films, um, and I think it described Ninth Configuration as the first existential Vietnam movie, which was very appealing, but. Um, to try and conjure up the atmosphere of this film, it's it, it's mm, by Blatty's own admission is broadly a comedy, and certainly at the beginning, um, yeah, the most of the action is set in this um, gothic castle, um, which is obviously not in the Pacific <laughs> Northwest. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, filmed in Budapest, wasn't it, for reasons of financing? I think the Pepsi Cola uh, company had uh, a, a bottling plant there, and they supplied some of the money, so they insisted on it being uh, filmed there. 
But one of the many things that makes this such a bizarre, gives this film such a bizarre atmosphere. But yeah, set in this gothic castle, um, an asylum for these military uh, fruitcakes, but it's not a serious look at madness, is it? I don't think it's meant to be a sensitive or realistic portrayal of mental illness. No, no, certainly not. I mean, from the first part of the film... Yeah, there's a kind of parade, isn't there, at the beginning? That's hilarious, you know. There's so many... um, There's lines put in there. It's it's very literary, the way that the people are speaking their lines, you know, over each other. Yeah, non-sequiturs that are just... Yeah, they're just popping out from all over the place, and you have... um, Is it Gruber? Gruber's the drill sergeant who's very by the book. You yeah, know, he's trying to keep them all in line, yeah. as it were. And uh, yeah, they're just going off in their little tangents. But yeah, a parade like, of people dressed as kind of nineteen twenties gangsters, Douglas Fairbanks, Douglas Fairbanks, um, yeah. who actually is going down. Smock. Is, yes, is, he's coming is, down, is down coming a rope, rope. with a dagger between his teeth. <laughs> um, and the, one of the main characters, Cut Shaw, who's got a very Harpo Marx kind of wardrobe throughout. But um, but it has that bawdy, um, yeah, a, bo- a bawdy sort of comedy approach, but with a lot of satirical sort of elements to it, you know, like MASH, uh, yeah, it Catch does, 22. It does feel very much part of that. I don't know if it was a movement even, but you, yeah, while Vietnam was on, you got an awful lot of these kind of books and films which treated the war as a black comedy or as a microcosm for lunacy in society, the madness mm. of the modern world. But amongst that, you've then got Stacey Keach, who comes on board, who um, possibly getting ahead of herself. I watched recently The Class of 1999, which has St- uh, Stacey Keach in a sort of albino mullet and white contact lenses. That was after I'd watched him in this, um, which is what I know him most, most uh, you know, which this is what I know him best for. Mm. And he's... He, is, he gives a fantastic performance in this as Kane, um, the military psychiatrist who's well, again, not spoiling it too much. There's more to him than, um, as with most Hollywood psychiatric films, he's not all there, is he? No, no. He gives a wonderfully troubled performance. I mean, it's a kind. Of, it's funny when I reflect on this now. Like, I'm thinking there's something very Kubrick, Kubrickian. Can you say that? Or Kubrick if you like Kubrickian if, sounds nice. Yeah, if you had a, a character in a Kubrick film, you know, someone who was troubled and who had the weight of the world on his shoulders um, with an intensity I can I can see this being in that kind of film you know, well I've not thought of that but I suppose the Kubrick parallel is his films are famous for not having much humanity in them and having yeah. real emotional restraint and being quite I was going to say frigid um, <laughs> yeah frosty <laughs> I don't know Fro- yeah, cold, uh, cold yeah. would be a good enough word but yeah amongst all these colourful lunatics you've got this guy who's I don't know the first time while you're watching it the first time you might think he's not really bothering to act he just seems so laconic and just seems mm. to be delivering these little meditations into nowhere um, but it really works he seems anchored elsewhere doesn't he yeah yeah he's definitely like outsider looking in mm-hmm. which is how obviously Blatty wants him to be uh, portrayed and the main thrust of the film is despite all these lunatics you've got Keach as the psychiatrist and Scott Wilson as Cutshaw, uh, an astronaut who's aborted his uh, his moonshot on the launch pad, which provides uh, again. Don't, I'm, saying all this, I'm saying this all the time. I don't want to spoil it, but there's a fantastic sequence involving that very early on in the first few minutes of the film. And yeah, it's it's 
it's time for us to discuss this now. The film goes from a comedy into a bit of theological tangent at this point. Mm. It takes such a sharp left turn. I wonder though, because like on reflection, it's like there's foundations being laid for this. Yeah, I mean, we um, both because know. of the dynamic of Cutshaw and Kane um, on their first meeting, like Cutshaw is very um, very confrontational and aggressive. Yeah, he's he he's, he vehemently wants uh, Kane out of there, doesn't he? He's like he's, he's, he's the nemesis, mm. basically, aren't they? Then. Uh, they, they sort of this dynamic forms between them the these opposites these searching these probing truths so you've got Cutshaw who says he's, well, there's he, nothing good in the world yeah it's all shit his major hang up is God is dead um, the world's just a brute biological fact which has some relevance to this mysterious title the ninth configuration which you'll find out when you watch the film yourself um, and then you've got Kane who seems to desperately need there to be even though Kutcher's the one who needs there to be goodness in the world, he's he's saying that there isn't. Um, I'm not sure if we're explaining this or The basic dialogue in the film is one character who would like there to be a god in the, the world or the some goodness. versus the Christian Yeah. That's as simple as it can be You've got two characters, one of whom believes the world is a brute biological fact, the other who can't believe that and needs there to be a spiritual element Though having said that, it's far from a happy, clappy kind of Sunday school preacher, is it? No, definitely. I mean, if obviously if you've seen The Exorcist, you that's quite out there. It's quite overt in its mm-hmm. um, religious themes, its theological themes. Although I don't know, but a lot of people still... could watch The Exorcist and think that's just decoration. You know, it's a spooky film, and yeah, you're going to draw on all of those fears. But I mean, Blatt has always said one of his reasons for making The Exorcist was to say, if the devil can exist in the modern world then so can God. So you've got this mirror. And this was this is why he says this is the sequel to The Exorcist. It's trying to take the reverse of saying, you know, um, God could exist in the modern world. Or there's, there's no reason to dismiss it because you think there's so much evil in the world that you can't have an all-loving, all-powerful God. I think Werner Herzog might argue against that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, that comes to that becomes the crux of the film, this uh, theological discussion for the, the last hour of the film, or 45 minutes. Yeah, so, something like that. But I've got to stress what a complete tangent this is for the film, because it seems to have... It's set up as a kind of slightly uncomfortable comedy, but then goes off and really attacks this this theme. It's I think stylistically as well, it goes away from its... Because um, I know one of your bugbears is how poor Stoply it is made, yeah. Um and in, in the first half you have these sort of like series of vignettes of people being mad and they just sort of randomly flow together in a hodgepodge mm-hmm. whereas in the latter half each scene becomes a lot more focused and direct so it's almost like Blatty's found what he really wants to talk about in the latter half of the film what he really wants to get underway because it's like you say it comes from the book and I think the book's meant to be a comedy overall, isn't it? Yeah, or Blatty's also said the book was notes for a novel. I think he said he wrote it in such a quick... Mm. You know, and it was written in the 60s, and he's, yes. a lot of things have happened in between then. Yeah. You know, his questioning of faith and, what well, the whole exorcist. But, I mean, do you buy this whole tangent it goes off on? Yeah, I really do. And I buy it more and more, and I look forward to it yeah. more in some ways. I love the sort of throwaway nature, almost, of the first part... The, I love the comedy elements and that, but I, I sort of yearn for the darker, the mm. more uh, deeper, more deeper, more deeper, yeah. the more deep 
Um, Paul is a bit pedant. <laughs> <laughs> You'll pick me up on a few. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, like I said, by the third time of viewing this, I, I was really absorbed in the latter half of the film because it, it became a real... Um, it became a different movie. Yeah, because something I don't think we've stressed, it's it's not so much about whether God exists, even though that's what Blatty insists. I think you can watch everyone everyone at some point in their life stops to wonder whether they think mankind is basically uh, decent or whether we're all just very selfish and violent and rushing towards our own ends um, so I think that always becomes that's always a relevant question I think you could probably watch this over several years several different times and draw your own conclusions because you mentioned the fact I'm not so keen on a lot of the technical <laughs> aspects of this it's a first time director but he's also his own producer and writer and I think that's fantastic that he was so um, dedicated to this film that he sort of invested everything in it not just money but you know invested so much of himself but it does mean you've got a film which has a lot of technical shortcomings and I do think for me I find it quite jarring and it's probably heresy to say but I do wish at times he'd got almost got somebody else in to direct or got a producer or someone to help him out but the flip side of that is there are two or three sequences in this which I think are fantastic. And I think they're precisely because he doesn't really know what he's doing. Or I would say it reminds me of when you get quotes from people like the Beatles saying, you know, they're so pleased they weren't trained musicians because it meant they approached uh, composing songs in a different manner. So, I mean, again, not wanting to spoil them, but there are, um, I think the titles to this are fantastic. Uh, I don't know if you're so impressed, but... The titles the San do have San Antone, this really baleful kind of uh, Glen Campbell style country song played over this mistbound castle with uh, military policemen in oil skins hanging around. It's such a weird juxtaposition. But the main one is um, the sequence which gives the film its title, The Ninth Configuration. I won't tell you exactly what happens because. Um, well, sadly. But if, if you get the DVD yeah, or sad, the scripts. Yeah, I mean for various reasons publicity people have decided this is the standout image of the film so it does decorate the cover of the DVD and the script book but the first time I saw this was in the uh, cinema and it was such a such a great scene to see. it was so surprising <laughs> it was such a striking visual but it's, it's quite interesting that the British uh, like quad poster for it is actually um, the main character is Steve Sandor who oh, right, the, towards the end of the movie there's a big scene with bikers with some bikers yeah. and he's like the head biker who's looking a bit like a, quite camp isn't he I was thinking yeah Elvis <clears throat> sort of quiff yeah. uh, a, a leather waistcoat but Egyptian eye makeup yeah. I always think he looks like Lee Majors in the Rocky Horror Picture Show yeah. <laughs> but I know the poster you mean because I mm. think that it was a deliberate attempt to look like Clockwork Orange it's got yes. the, the oh, triangle hasn't it and, undoubtedly, uh, and the yeah. knife coming out yeah. it's a corker I mean that yeah. goes for like a few hundred quid on uh, eBay but yeah you're not bothered by these technical not at all I mean like, they, I don't even notice them whether or not I'm just um, inert to sort of like the technical capabilities you've watched so of, many low budget films yeah I, don't, I, don't, I often find that I'm, um, it doesn't bother me like the technical aspects of films it's I think this works. It, it just it, it yeah, works I mean, fine. Though. Well, it can do because hopefully we conveyed it. it is such a bizarre film that to have those elements almost gives it a bit of a dreamlike quality. Because like I say, there's there's dialogue that seems to be from someone who's not in frame, but is way too high up, way too high in the mix, or bits that cut away 
cutaway scenes that happen so quickly you're not even sure that you saw them. Yeah, I mean, that's totally, like you said before you were talking about, was it the Beatles who mm-hmm. had that sort of approach? There's a, there was, like, the whole thing of, uh, you know, like, the no-wave scene and the industrial scene in Britain and, you see, like, Throbbing Gristle yeah. and then... Like, um, Gosh, we've moved on from drinking bile, haven't we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, but that approach, that sort of, like, Peter Jackson style, that fearlessness of just going for it and, you know to hell with it I just want to get this story across well maybe Jackson didn't have the story to get across but he wanted to do his thing on screen and this is what Blatty is trying to do he, his heart and soul is in this and yeah. that's admirable and the technical shortcomings maybe I'm seeing it through rose tinted spectacles to some degree but it doesn't bother me it's not It's not an issue ok well like I said we're going to discuss the end of the film um after the end credits of this show. That sounds very regal, obviously. But something I just wanted to ask you, um, you say, Blatty's put his heart and soul into this. He has done lots and lots of re-editing on this and released so many cuts that he's not even sure of them himself. Um, do you think all these cuts mean, mean that Blatty is uncertain of himself as a filmmaker technically or that he's not even sure of the message he's trying to convey? Because again, I don't want to spoil it, but one of the major contentious points is about um, one of the major scenes which gets added or deleted depending on how he's feeling comes right at the end I think it's a bit of everything I think he's unsure maybe I mean you've put all that money time and effort into a movie you know you need to get some commercial financial gain from it for it to succeed Mm. I mean there's got to be that element to it but also he he says like if you listen to the commentary that's the definitive cut for him that the one that you watch on the DVD. He's fed up after twenty years. Yeah, and because um, I prefer the one I saw at the pictures. Yeah, <laughs> I'll go with Blatty. I mean, yeah, you're a Blatty man. Yeah, no, Commode's the Blatty man. He's the Blatty man. <laughs> no, I, I I honestly think he is happy with the version that he's put out, and I am. I, but, it fits the bill perfectly for me. I've, I've only ever seen this version, so I've only mm-hmm. seen the same thing over and over again, whereas you saw a different cut. So. And have you seen John Borman's Exorcist the Heretic? I turned it off after half an hour. I will watch it. I mean, I'm, I don't like to be defeated by films, but <laughs> especially by a Borman. It's got a great soundtrack, let me tell you. <laughs> Any at his best. <laughs> I've come here to talk about Colonel Fell. What about him? Major Namek approached him this morning, complaining of a strange and wondrous illness. And do you know what that heartless butcher prescribed? He said, here, take this. It's a suicide pill with a mild laxative side effect. An ancient castle inhabited by delusional military fruitcakes will probably make the ideal home for another old serviceman we've been getting to know. He's a master strategist. I am telling you how to save the lives of 600 men. Demolitions expert. Get onto the diving section, tell them I want a wetsuit and a berry gun. And he doesn't need a license to kill. Except for a slight squelch when entering the flesh, they do not make any noise. Roger Moore fights against time and terror as folks. If you've ever wanted to see Anthony Perkins as a gay terrorist causing all sorts of grief for the British government, your lonely way ends here. Released in 1979, North Sea Hijack, known widely outside the UK as Folks, two small f's, or Assault Force, is directed by Andrew V. McLaughlin, who the previous year was also behind another celebrated piece of extracurricular James Bond work for Roger Moore in The Wild Geese. 
The action here has Perkins as the pseudonymous Lou Kramer leading an international criminal gang, overpowering the crew of a Norwegian supply vessel and swiftly using their now explosives-laden ship to seize control of Jennifer, a North Sea oil rig, and demand a ransom of £25 million under threat of blowing the whole thing sky-high. In that situation, who are you going to call? Roger Moore is the ex-Navy and just plain extraordinary Rufus Excalibur folks, the hard-drinking, woman-hating, cat-loving leader of his own freelance counter-terrorist force, and a man who demands such dedication that training exercises frequently see him hurl live hand grenades at his team of long-suffering frogmen. With world-weary Admiral James Mason on hand to look defeated and to ask folks what the hell he's doing on our behalf, much of the film is an exercise in tension-building, as plans to resolve the crisis are worked through and the imprisoned crew make their own valiant attempts to poison their captors. Now, I always feel a tremendous sense of guilt whenever, on those rare occasions when North Sea Hijack is mentioned. Um, reason being, when this came out in 1979, uh, it would have come out during the school holidays. Uh, my mother had gone out for the day and she gave me and my brother enough money to go to the local pictures. And... My brother was about 15, my brother Philip, who I'm sure will be listening to this podcast at some point. You, you can understand at that age you're going to be quite excited at the prospect of Roger Moore in a, in a, in a I was going to say a swimsuit. A vermilion swimsuit. <laughs> vermilion <laughs> frogman's outfit, uh, scuba gear, taking on uh, Anthony Perkins. I Grappling. Wasn't, I was <laughs> Grappling with Perkins. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't I wasn't so excited though and I I threw a bit of a fit I seem to recall and so I mean I was I was about 7 I think at this time we ended up instead of watching North Sea Hijack um, watching Disney's reissue of the Aristocats Anthropomorphic Cats versus Roger Moore what can, what can you do That's a film we're still waiting for Have you seen <laughs> Aristocats I have It's no Jungle Book is it No it's definitely I liked O'Malley the uh, Ali Cat song. I thought that was all right. You've seen it more recently than me, then. Um, no, I remember. <laughs> but <laughs> it's yeah, not the greatest. So I have no childhood memories of watching this film, and what a fool I was because it's uh, it's absolutely fantastic, isn't it? I don't know where to begin. I'm, I'm well, still we, reeling we, from uh, we need the to character. Be, we need to begin with yes, Roger Moore as the. Uh, I was going to say the titular character. He is if you're outside the UK, where the film's known as Folks with two small Fs. But it was it was an attempt to bust his James Bond typecasting fairly successfully, isn't it? Very successful. They're both ex sailors who like a drink, but I think the resemblance stops the resemblance stops there. He has the most extraordinary wardrobe, um, dresses like he's on a hunt, or engaging in some kind of uh, country gents. Pursuit. Yeah, there's a lot of tweed going on. Tweed piping on the lapels, <laughs> carpet bags. Is the, is the pin-up of geography teachers everywhere? Oh, he goes way beyond any geography <laughs> teacher. But uh, his little Robin Hood beard. Um, his, he's got his petit pois. His, I don't yeah, mean his... his, his that's not his peas. little peas. <laughs> oh, goodness. No, it's his uh, uh, cross-stitch, cross isn't it? But he's absolutely extraordinary. I mean, if you're watching this now, it's um, if, if you're watching it in the, in the modern era, he's extraordinary. What he meant in 1979, I'm not entirely sure. Um, are we meant, I mean, some, we've, got, we've got across his dress sense, hopefully. But just his attitude is uh, pretty objectionable, isn't it? Yeah, he's, he's so uh, misogynist and takes every opportunity to, uh, to make it clear what his attitudes are towards women. Uh, seems to live in some never-never world. Yeah, he's, he's from a bygone era. I mean, to us watching this now, he's from a bygone era, but to then he must have been another bygone era. Well, that's a, that's a curious thing, because I don't want to get into this side of it too much now. I want to stress 
what an enjoyable film this is, but you can't help watching it without having some sense of uh, sociological implications, I suppose. In 19... Because nowadays, you do get a lot of figures in Britain, certainly like Jeremy Clarkson, uh, Simon Cowell, who make their reputations on being very forthright. I'm not sure if Roger Moore in this film, as folks, is meant to be a similar kind of character, or whether he's meant to be some camp icon. Yeah, I think it's easier for us now to view him as a camp icon. I think back then he was there was still enough of that sort of uh, I was going to say British bullshit, but the idea well, of British bulldog kind of spirit. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, bulldog. That's especially what I meant. coming out of all the trouble Britain had in the seventies. <laughs> but with, having like uh, the eccentric sort of central character, there's something like Sherlock Holmes about him. Not just his dress sense, but hmm. his acuity, his yeah. ability to view a situation, uh, predict what's going to happen and break it down. There is all that, yeah. I mean, obviously, as we mentioned, James Mason's in the film as this sort of admiral figure who doesn't do anything at all other than stand there and kind of... Wait for the money to roll in. I guess so. <laughs> but his character just stands there and looks kind of reluctant to have to take on this freelancer, but kind of acknowledges that he's probably the best the best bet they have yeah and uh, also at the time in britain you know you, it was like the end of labor and uh, there'd been blackouts there'd been you know rubbish was piling high in leicester square and well everywhere but particularly in leicester square judging by the uh oh yes i showed you that photo didn't i with damien omen too was on yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or was it and jaws too i think so yeah, I think the idea of some someone uh, outside of the political or governmental um, uh, structure, structure, yeah. To say, look, we can do it this way. You yeah, know, like, the one man army. Who's yeah? He's so got. Like, well, he's not quite one man. You know, he's got frogmen. Well, yeah, he has his. He has his team of paunchy frogmen. <laughs> but yeah, we're probably making this sound a little more um, Sociolo- sociologically <laughs> aware than it is. It's a straight-ahead action movie. It's yeah. it's knockabout fun, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's not that reflective of the era. I don't think. I think when we well, it's curious to look back now. Yeah. Whilst recording this with a few cans of beer, but uh, <laughs> at the time, this was fairly typical of films that Britain was uh, coming out with. Um, action-packed, kind of nautical-themed films. There were a lot of Clive Cussler or uh, Alistair MacLean kind of adaptations coming around at this time. Like I say, it's an action movie. It's a lot of knockabout fun, isn't it? But it's surprisingly light on actual action. It yeah. does feel the thing it reminded me of, um, although it's nowhere near as good, is the original taking of Pelham One Two Three, where you've got the siege situation, and it's more about how are we gonna, the good guys are discussing at some length how they're gonna sort this out, and that's most of this film, isn't it? It's more Roger Moore methodically going through how he's gonna sort this um, the situation through. Yeah, yeah, he's like the um, like the Mattel character, mm-hmm. isn't he? It doesn't have the kind of scenes from maybe like a James Bond movie where there's people being shot left, right, and center. Explosions. Explosions, pyrotechnics, yeah. blah de blah. You know, there's a jet it, ski. <laughs> no, there's no jet ski. I don't think there's a jet ski. <laughs> no, no, no. I I just put that in my own mind. Yeah. <laughs> it's still really taut, and it's like well put together it's it's a good pace like, it it's is. really it's well paced it's very enjoyable it's about an hour and a half long edited yeah. very well in order to bring together like a few subplots that um uh, carry the the film as a whole you know you've got that whole thing going on on the uh, the hijacked vessel with the norwegian yeah. well I mean, are a, they norwegian uh they're <laughs> from somewhere around the scandinavia 
Irish Newcastle kind of border Welsh. right there. <laughs> I think they're all over the shop. It's good you bring that up. I mean, no pun attended, but intended, but the film is kept afloat by that kind of stuff, isn't it? We're cutting, cutting back to the um, the hijack situation constantly and the crew trying to poison their captors and there's a certain amount of... Um, there's some double-crossing. Double-crossing. There's yeah. plans when you're not sure who's on who's, who's on what side. Um, I think, yeah, it keeps it really lively. Yeah, it does. It does, definitely. And then you've got this like, central key figure of folks but also like his nemesis uh, Perkins Perkins yes he's, he's, he's pretty good I as mean, as someone I introduced earlier as a gay terrorist I mean that isn't made too overt but it's fairly clear isn't it he's yeah. very tactile with his um, <laughs> does head sound, does that sound, I was going to say he's too tactile with his second in command yeah Michael Parks he was in uh, Twin Peaks um, Jacques Renault for uh, I think quite a decent part of the second series and he's in Kevin Smith's uh, Red State which is due to come out soon Was this an attempt to break typecasting for Anthony Perkins? Because something I only discovered while I was searching around for this film was that prior to Psycho, which is obviously what everybody knows Anthony Perkins for um, he was a heartthrob character he was a bit of a, a teen he pinner a crooner, and he, he was a crooner, we may even get to hear some of his uh, golden tonsils <laughs> <laughs> Later on in this podcast, if we like it, I think he does a pretty good job, Perkins. Yeah, he's all right. Uh, he he seems slightly. He's like a, a supply teacher, I think. Well, he's in that he just lets the captors. They keep saying, "Oh, can we do this? Can we have this?" The captives. Like, oh, Yo, go on then. Yeah, oh, you might as well. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, it's it's a pretty good adversary, considering they don't really meet until the last sort of five or ten minutes in well, the movie well again I, I don't want to spoil as always I don't want to spoil too much they do meet but they're not kind of aware that they are nemeses at that point do they no. I think there's the point when they sort of meet briefly um, and again not spoiling the ending but it's kind of perfunctory isn't it you, you're used to watching a Mission Impossible style setup where there's a plan and something there's a spanner in the works and things have to be improvised and there's a lot of tension it's got to be said with this, things are just kind of sorted out quite neatly. Uh, well, there is, there is neatly, a, ever but such a slight spanner in the works. Oh, yes. Um, with, yeah, with, yeah. The, with one of with uh, Moore's own men. And the, well, the long I mean, suffering when Harris. they actually come to the yeah. nemeses face each other, Perkins just says, I, I, don't, I don't trust you. I don't yeah. like your eyes. So he gets, folks, get on, get on your helicopter and get out of here. And, but, you know, they, they get around this situation with some fun as well. So because uh, he's parading around <laughs> his vermilion swimsuit. I mean, wetsuit. Wet <laughs> so strangely, of the three films we've discussed tonight, um, this is the only one that actually crops up on British TV with some regularity. I mean, you, 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 this will crop up on late night ITV fairly frequently. Yeah, it's, it's an ITV film. I mean, so something I just want to raise to round things off here. Um, this was made after. Uh, or around the time that Roger Moore had done Moonraker, which is the James Bond film that gets quite a kicking. I mean, I'm I quite like it, but admittedly only for nostalgic reasons. For me, James Bond with Roger Moore, uh, the next film he did was Fury Eyes Only, when he's starting to look quite long in the tooth. Um, would you have liked folks to have continued as a franchise, maybe? 
definitely I think it would have been perfect as a franchise especially at that period as well going into the 80s I mean the Falklands War was about to start so you know like British spirit was coming it's gonna be I'm just thinking about how tasteless this could have been yeah <laughs> yes. but they really would have they would have fed on that oh, wouldn't they you know God. you know, the, the film industry loves that kind of shit so. Galtieri <laughs> <laughs> yes corn beef never eat this stuff if Piers Brosnan is listening, we'll forgive you, Mamma Mia, if you get behind a reboot of this franchise immediately. Only if he gets to sing the theme <laughs> You really don't like women, do you? I do not. You see, I, together with my five older sisters, was raised by a maiden aunt. Both my parents died tragically in childbirth. Until the age of ten, I was forced to wear my sisters hand-me-downs then when I married I discovered to my horror that my wife also had five sisters all unmarried and all expecting my support I find cats a far superior breed just on the off chance I have made a will I've left everything to my cats I want it testified that I am sound of body and mind Well, go on! So, that just about wraps up our debut. Thanks for listening to our ignorant prattle. And if you haven't seen any of the films we were discussing tonight, hopefully we've piqued your interest and you might hunt them down and get as much enjoyment from them as we have. Um, it'd be really good to get some feedback, um, positive, negative. You know, we, we can take it all. More, more positive, though, please. Um, you can email us at midnightvideo at hotmail.co.uk or you can go on Twitter and find us at Midnight Video. Also, I'm on Twitter myself uh, at The Furious. That's T-H-E-P-H-U-R-I-O-U-S and I've also got a blog that I started earlier this year which is Christ Kid, You're a Weirder all one word. Um, bit of a mouthful but it's one of my favourite lines from uh, Bad Boy Bubby. Um, yes, yeah, so that's ChristKidYou'reAWeirdo.com And don't forget, after the end's music, we have our podcast Easter egg where we'll be discussing the end of the ninth configuration. So, take it away, Mr. Perkins. Let's go on a moonlight swim Far away from the crowd, all alone upon the beach Our lips and our arms close within each other's reach will be on a moonlight swim. So welcome back. This is uh, the Easter egg segment. So you might crack us open and find oh, some little delights inside, or find the tomb empty, <laughs> or probably sp- empty. Anyway, yeah, um, yeah. Thanks for bearing with us. This is us discussing the very end of uh, Ninth Configuration, which, um, if you're listening, hopefully you already know the film, because I I wouldn't want to spoil it for anybody. But basically, um, Stacey Keach's character turns out not to be a psychiatrist. He turns out to be a notorious Marine who's gone off the rails, uh, Killer Kane, who is uh, notorious for garroting his victims. It's like Dolph Lundgren in Universal Soldier. Yes. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Minus the the earring. Without the cybernetic uh, implants. And the earring uh, necklace. But when this is, um, and yeah, he, he's basically had a mental breakdown and believes himself to be his own brother, um, Vincent Kane. I think that's the right way around, isn't it, rather than Hudson Kane? Yes. Yeah, yeah that's right. Uh, but yeah, so basically this brings about a big change in the film, obviously. Um, 
cut short the astronaut who's been listening to all of these uh, very wonderful theories from his psychiatrist about how there could be a god suddenly realises that he's been talking to this mass murderer um, the film then concludes with this I think fantastically executed uh, bar fight with these hell's angels where uh, eventually Stacy Keach's character after a lot of provocation it's painful to watch flips and basically kills all of them in about 30 seconds flat I think I think it's such a brilliantly done scene um, there's something that there's something with that whole scene uh, there's like a messianic thing going on you know oh like, yeah he's the oh, Jesus being tested and, totally yeah. but but the thing is he does what most people would think is the human thing to do after this fight this is the contentious scene, which is uh, Kane, uh, Stacy Keach, goes back to the uh, the castle and dies. But in one version, this is it's made clear that he received an injury uh, during the fight and doesn't want to do anything about it. He wants to let himself bleed to death from this knife uh, knife wound. In another version, it's clear that he's actually uh, cut his wrist and he's taken his own life as some kind of shock therapy for Cutshaw, which to me has never really made sense although that's what's in the current version of the film isn't it, it is, say the yeah. current cut does that work for you because i don't really understand I've how gone over this just killing yourself not unless you are jesus and you're taking the sins of the world on your shoulders yeah that's kind of an exceptional case though, <laughs> well quite well they've obviously had this earlier conversation where uh, suicide isn't acceptable to um oh, i've forgotten his name cut cut short sure um, he says, you know, it, it's it's just a way out. It's the, there's no sacrifice there for the fellow human being, you know, to save to save someone to save. Uh, yeah, because suicide's an act of despair, as far as I'm despair, concerned. That's and right. um, I mean, I think that's why Blatty had a lot of problems with it, with sort of Catholic sensibilities. The issue I have with that is, it makes sense for me that he might get wounded and allow himself to die or at least present it that way because as far as I see it once he's actually provoked and re-emerges as Killer Kane, that Killer Kane identity and kills all of these Hell's Angels it's almost like he's realised oh god this is what I am anything I've been talking about about there being any decency to humanity is total hot air <laughs> I'm sure it's a bit more uh, I'm sure the language you'd think of was probably a bit worse than that um, and it is, it's an act of despair for him it's like I can't face existing knowing that I'm completely wrong about this and Cutshaw then is so desperate to believe that there is a god or goodness that he views it as more of a messianic act the more I think about it, the more I struggle to deal with uh, it seems so ambiguous doesn't it There's uh... and yet I don't think there was any ambiguity for Blatty because when I first no. watched it uh, and the scene he wants the knife next, he wants the knife there, but he also wants the next scene when this St. Christopher's medal appears, which is a very definite indication that Cain is reaching out from the spiritual world. I was going to say, this is the point of that whole sequence before, I think. It, mm -hmm. it all hinges on that um, cut show discovering the St. Christopher with the Amma Buddhist. Well... We assume it does, but although Cutshaw ne we see him turn the, cro the medal over, we never hear him. We don't, but you know, you... you more fool for you for thinking it's anything other than that. I think. I don't know. In that, in that, at that point, he could have Cutshaw himself could have sort of fallen under this spell and thought, yeah, yeah. I know. I, regardless of what the the facts are, I'm going to believe this. I think. Yeah, I think that's. I think it's as simple as that. Is because I'm getting <laughs> quite deep in 
my religious beliefs here, but you know, the idea of believing in something like a god or an afterlife is, it just seems absolutely ridiculous and overblown, and mm-hmm. it doesn't make any sense to me. I think what Blatter is saying, I do believe in a god, I do believe in miracles, no matter how overblown and <laughs> ridiculous. And I think he's saying it. it's as simple as that. Miracles do happen, uh, as they did with him and his mum with the chain. Yeah. I think it's a reference it's that, to that. Blatty himself said that his after his mother's death, he found similarly a piece of jewellery that belonged to her. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think maybe it is that simple. That's No, I mean, I know that's definitely what Blatty wants it to be. But like mm. I say, when I first saw it, I didn't see that. I thought this the ending of the film meant... But did Blatty do that cut the cut when I first saw it didn't um, definitely said the biker's knife slipped in suggesting that Keach was dying out of a sort of more of a I can't face I can't face this anymore obviously suicide would mean that as well but in the end I I've said before it reminded me of the ending of Brazil or Blue Velvet when you've got these characters who'd rather believe in a false world Mm. than the reality of what they're in because it's much more comfortable to stay there and that's why yeah like it really knocked me out Joe Pantoliano in uh, The Matrix as well you know when he says like, yeah, I want to have this steak I guess I in it as well yeah. it's just like fuck it yeah but yeah well that's the beauty of the ambiguity I suppose yeah. well depending it? which which one you see <laughs> my problem with this film is that I think it has a lot of technical shortcomings but I'm grateful for that because I think I can still watch it and believe it's the film I watched <laughs> in 1999 which has this ending which I don't think is un- well when I first saw it I didn't think it was ambiguous I thought that was the message was actually the world's a terrible place of darkness violence selfishness and the only way you'll get through it is to create your own little fantasy and believe in it wholeheartedly but I know that wasn't Blatty's view Anything to add? Pretty much wraps it up. Well, thanks for bearing with us. This really is the end. Um, So thank you and uh, join us next time. San Antonio, it's really good to see you. It's been a while, but you've been on my mind. I've seen your rolling hills and winding. So clear that I could almost make them.